All right. How many of you know what these are? Okay, if you don't know what these are, we have a problem. Does anybody, like, let's actually lift our hands. Do you know what these are? Yes, very good. Um, Happy Meals. How many of you have purchased a Happy Meal sometime in your life? Very good. How many of you have purchased many, many, many Happy Meals in your life? Yes, a lot lot of you. Uh, The Happy Meal debuted in 1979, And I think it's safe to say that everyone born since then had the Happy Meal as a part of their childhood. And uh, and those, you know, born since then that have now grown and are adults and, you know, have their own children, the Happy Meal is now very likely a part of your child's life uh, as well. And of course, what really puts the happy in the Happy Meal is the toy. Have any of you ever tried to go into McDonald's and convince your child to just get the burger and the fries and the drink that go in the Happy Meal, but not actually buy the Happy Meal. Have any of you tried that? Yes. And you likely found when you tried that, that it is not, you know, those things that make a Happy Meal happy, but it is the toy. You have to have the toy for it to qualify as a Happy Meal. So I have a couple of Happy Meals here, and uh, they consist of a very delightfully colorful box with a bright yellow smile, then you open it up, and this particular Happy Meal has some chicken nuggets. Uh, It is supposed to have four. This one has two. I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, And then... Has some French fries. Usually these bags are full, but uh, whoever filled this one didn't do a very good job because it's not full. Not sure what happened there either. And then a drink. Have a drink with it. This one has a little creamy ranch. It also had some sweet and sour, but that's no longer with us. (laughs) And then it comes with the toy. And this toy is... Something from Littlest Pet Shop, which I know nothing about. How many of you know about Littlest Pet Shop? All right, quite a few of you. So there you go. Delightful little toy. Then we have another Happy Meal here. Same delightful box. A full order of fries. These are up, I think, to about 52 degrees. So if any of you would like to try them, uh, you know, after the sermon, they'll be here. You're welcome to them. Uh, This one has a hamburger, which one of the great things about McDonald's hamburgers is they taste the same hot or cold, so there you go. (laughs) This one came with chocolate milk, and this one has a toy for a boy, and uh, this is Max Steel Jump Jet. I think that's the top. So there you go. So, Happy Meal. Something that brings happiness. The the happy meal. So through my own kid's childhood, I conducted extensive research on the happy meal. And here's what I found, which I've already stated, it is the toy that makes it happy. No toy, no happy. <laughs> you, you, you know this. I've titled today's message, The Problem with the Happy Meal. 
And I just sense that many of you are probably wondering, what could possibly be wrong with a Happy Meal? Brian has finally gone off the deep end. He is officially against everything. He's even against the Happy Meal. Could someone please get through to Brian that we need to be for things instead of against things? But there is a problem with a Happy Meal. And here's what it is. It does not deliver what it promises. Now, I'm not suggesting that there isn't some, you know, short-term happiness that results from the Happy Meal. There, there is. But it doesn't last. And if you've bought one, you know it doesn't last. Here's what happens is that in a very short amount of time, the, the happiness that the Happy Meal caused, the, the happiness the toy caused, it wears off. And then there's no more happiness. And when that happens, the response of the child is almost always to want and demand another Happy Meal. And if you, parent, want your child's happiness to return, you doggone well better get to McDonald's and buy another Happy Meal. And then a new Happy Meal is bought A new toy is acquired, and the process continues. The toy, once again, loses its appeal, and this process repeats itself over and over and over again. The Happy Meal does not bring any lasting happiness. But those of you who have lived through the insistence of a child who wants their next Happy Meal, you know that something that the Happy Meal does cause is extreme unhappiness. When you don't have one that you want, it causes extreme unhappiness. And since the Happy Meal doesn't deliver lasting happiness, our kids enter this this cycle of getting a toy and being happy for a little while, the toy losing its appeal, and then needing another toy to be happy again. So not only does the Happy Meal not deliver what it promises... But it taps into a malady that's shared by virtually every human being on earth that has not been changed by Jesus Christ, and that is our insatiable desire for more. The Happy Meal manipulates that desire. Now, I do like the Happy Meal, okay? I, even as I was buying these, I was thinking, this is what I need to start ordering when I come here. Because these are, these are better portions than the things I order when, when, when I go to McDonald's. So, so I like the Happy Meal. And from a business perspective, I think the Happy Meal is really a sheer genius. It, it really is genius. But what I've shared is absolutely true about the Happy Meal. It doesn't deliver what it promises. And it manipulates our insatiable desire for more. Pretty much every material thing in life, anything that can be purchased with money, if you boil it down to its essence, it's a happy meal. It can't deliver what it promises. And it feeds and manipulates our desire for more. Those of you who have 40 pairs of shoes in your closet... Now, I'm not going to judge you today 
I guess it would be possible that you could have 40 pairs of shoes and this not be true. But if you have 40 pairs of shoes, it is almost certain that shoes are a happy meal for you. They're your happy meal. You got a pair of shoes. They made you happy until they didn't. And then you needed another pair of shoes to be happy again. And this went on and on until you had 40 pairs of shoes. And one of the things that I think I'm picking up from looking at your faces is that I have set the number too low. (laughs) I I think maybe the, the number should go higher. Vacations can be a happy meal. You know, you go on one, you find some short-term happiness. The second day you're back from it, you're unhappy again. And then you're unhappy until you have another vacation. It's a happy meal. Home decorating can be a happy meal. Oh, I love my new curtains in my living room. And now I despise my curtains in my dining room. And I cannot be happy until those are replaced as well. Now, I want to be clear. Material things don't have to be a happy meal. When, when we buy something that we're pleased with, we're, it, it doesn't cause us to be happy. Like, it's not the source of our happiness, but we're happy with it. And we remain happy with it. And we're content with it and it's not feeding our desire for more, then that's not a happy meal. But, but anything that you get, and then you're unhappy with it until you get another one or something else, that's a happy meal. So, so here's how you know if you're, if you're somebody who's motivated by happy meals. You, you get something, you're happy, then you're not happy anymore, then you need to get something else to be happy, then once again you're not happy, then you need something, it's a happy meal. That's a happy meal. Have you noticed that sometimes kids get really ugly in their quest for a happy meal? I I have noticed this, and and sometimes our happy meals make us act ugly. Our adult happy meals make, make us act ugly, but even if they don't make us act ugly, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6 that our quest for more and more happy meals can really do serious damage to our lives. In the first few verses of 1 Timothy 6, Paul warns Timothy once again about the false teachers that had infiltrated the church at Ephesus. And he mentions in his writing that some of these false teachers, many of them actually, were motivated by financial gain. And he launches off of that observation regarding the false teachers to give some of the best advice available regarding money, our desire for more, and the better way, which is contentment. And so let's look at our text and see what we find. We're going to look at 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 12, and then we'll skip down a few verses and look at 17 through 19. I think it'll be on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bible. So follow along as I read. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we, had, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Within these verses, Paul addresses what he calls a root of all kinds of evil, and that is the love of money. Now, sometimes Paul's teaching here gets misunderstood to say that money is the root of all evil. And that's not what Paul says, and that is not true. Money is a neutral thing. It is not good. It is not evil. But the love of money, that's a problem. Jesus taught that the love of money, uh, that, that we can love money so much that it becomes a rival God, that it becomes a master that we serve instead of him. That's found in Matthew 6, if you want to check that out this week. And here's one reason money can get so much of a hold on us, why we can fall so in love with money. It is because money is how we get our happy meals. We want more happy meals. And so we want more money to buy all the happy meals that we could ever desire. And sometimes people get to the place where they love money so much that even when they have all the happy meals that they've ever wanted, they still want more money. We, we don't at that point just love what money can do for us, but we get to the place where we literally love money. We want more and more and more. We're, we're never satisfied. A good definition of the love of money is this, an insatiable desire for more. More of what money can buy or just more money. But the love of money, great definition of it, is the insatiable desire for more. Verse 9 references those who want to get rich. Verse 10 references those who are eager for money. They, they desire more. It's, it's not enough for them just to have the money they need to meet their needs. They want to be rich. They are eager for money. Someone has said that the love of money is kind of like trying to quench your thirst by drinking salt water. Instead of quenching your thirst, what it does is it increases your thirst. Instead of satisfying your thirst, it just fuels our desire for more. And that's what the love of money can sometimes do to people. They can have a, a whole bunch of it, but it's not satisfying to them anymore because they, they just love it so much. They want more and more and more. One of the reasons that we love money so much is because we believe, we convince ourselves that money provides us with security. But the Apostle Paul tells us in his writing to Timothy that money is very unreliable at providing security for us. Verse 17 commands that hope should not be placed in wealth because wealth is so 
uncertain. Those of you uh, who lost money in the, in the stock market just not that long ago during the housing crisis and the economic downturn of, uh, I believe it was 2008 and 2009, you can testify to this. Many people lost significant percentages of what they had put away for retirement and they found out that, you know, trusting, trusting our wealth for our security is, is something that just doesn't deliver what it promises. One of the things I think about when I, when I think about the limits of what wealth can do for us is I think of Steve Jobs, the, the founder of Apple Computers, who was a billionaire multiple times over, and yet he died at 57 years old of cancer. All of his billions could do nothing to secure his health. He couldn't buy his way to good health. He had all the money anybody could ever hope to have, but it did not provide security for him. And Paul warns us that the love of money can lead us to destruction. Verse 10, as I've already noted, calls it a root of all kinds of evil. Verse 9 says that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that, quote, plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then Paul writes in verse 10 that the love of money can actually cause people to wander away from the faith and they pierce themselves with many griefs. The love of money can actually lead you away from God. It usually starts by chipping away at your dependence on God. You start acquiring some money, you build up a little nest egg, which is a good thing to do. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But if you're not careful, you begin feeling pretty self-sufficient and it it chips away at your feeling of dependence on God. And for some of us, this, this can actually lead us down a path where eventually we just walk away from God. And it shouldn't surprise us. Uh, since Jesus warned us that money can become a master that we serve instead of him. The love of money will do all kinds of horrible things to people. It'll cause you to neglect your time with God. It'll cause you to uh, kind of just, you know, bow out of involvement in Christian community. People who love money can become very selfish you know, I've, I've known very well-off people who were extremely generous, but I'll tell you what, I've known, I've known people who were very well-off, and, and they would not give a dime to any cause other than themselves. It can become very selfish. Love of money can lead us to all kinds of wrong ways of trying to acquire it or keep it. You know, we, we just fudge a few numbers on our tax return to, to keep some money. There's nothing wrong with taking advantage of every legal opportunity you have not to give your money to someone else. But some of us go beyond that and we enter into the realm of the unethical because we so much want to hold on to our money. And here's a big one. The love of money can cause people to neglect their families in pursuit of money. And And I'm not talking about you know, that you have to take a part-time job to make ends meet and provide for your family. That's not what I'm talking about. But you just have an insatiable desire for more, that even though your needs are met, you just pursue money at the expense of your family. 
Paul knows the destructive force that's unleashed when people fall in love with money. And so he properly warns here against the love of money and he commends something better. Look at verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Instead of falling in love with and pursuing money, Paul says, pursue righteousness and goodness and faith and love. Take hold of the eternal life that you've been called to. Take hold of eternal life right now, right in this present time. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? It will to many of you because Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew 6. He taught that instead of pursuing money and the things that money can buy, that we should pursue the kingdom of God and that if we would, God would make sure that our needs are provided for. Verse 17 of today's text. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Put your hope in God, pursue him, and God will provide the things that you actually need. Verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Verse 8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So let's summarize all that. Here's what God wants for us. That instead of loving money so much, we pursue that with an insatiable desire for more. That we would love him so much that we pursue him with an insatiable desire for more. That we would place our hope in him instead of in money. And that we would be content, that we would be happy with food and clothing, I'll define that as with our basic necessities met because our happiness does not depend on anything else but him. That's what God wants for us. Now on this one, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of us live in that place? And I want to be clear here. I'm I'm not today advocating for poverty. I'm not suggesting that Christians should not have money. I, I personally don't believe that God is nearly as troubled by wealthy Christians as unwealthy Christians are. It's not money or having money that's the problem. It is loving money that is the problem. And since God desires for us to pursue his kingdom instead of money, since he desires for us to trust him instead of money and desires for us to be so satisfied by him that we're happy with simply having our basic needs met, here are a few things that, that we find that can move us in that direction if we'll embrace them, believe them, and put them into practice. Here's the first one. We have to stop allowing ourselves to be fooled and realize that it simply is not in the power of things to bring us happiness. Christianity doesn't plead for us to be in poverty, but it does plead for us to learn that it is not in the power of stuff to make us happy. We know this from the happy meal, and we know it from all of our happy meals. We know it from the lives of the rich and famous who have everything, 
but aren't happy. E.K. Simpson said, many a millionaire after choking his soul on gold dust has died from melancholy. And we know this is true. Some of, some of these examples are getting a bit of age on them, but you think of you know, famous people, uh, Kurt Cobain, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, had everything, fame, wealth, but no peace and no contentment. The Greek philosopher Epicurus said, to whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. If you're taking notes and it doesn't look like you are, this would be a good thing to write down. (laughs) To whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. It's so true. The, The people who really possess happiness are happy with little or much. Stuff, money, does not control them. I want you to take just a minute here and consider your own life and mentally list out a few of the things that promised you happiness. You just knew. If you had that, you would be happy. Did they deliver in the long term? Oh, there, there might be a few things that you're still happy with, but did they actually bring you lasting happiness? Learn the lesson. Things simply do not have the power to bring lasting happiness, peace, and contentment. We keep convincing ourselves they do, but they don't. Our lives show us this if we'll pay attention to the lessons that life is trying to teach us. Here's a truth that ought to help liberate us from the tyranny of the love of money. Look at verse seven. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. No matter how much you accumulate in this life, here's the cold hard facts. You're going out the same way you came in. Empty-handed, no wealth, no possessions. William Barclay says that when we leave this world, we only have two things, ourselves and God. And so he encourages us that in light of that, our task is to build a self that we can take to God without shame. I think that's a great way to look at life. But what's life about? It's, it's building a self that I can take to God unashamed. Your house doesn't go with you when you return to God. Your car doesn't go with you. Your stamp collection doesn't go with you. I mean, even if it gets tucked in your casket, it's actually not going with you. Your 75 pairs of shoes don't go with you. Did you notice I upped the number? This realization that we leave the world as we entered it is supposed to sober us up. It's supposed to help bring us to our senses. Uh, our senses. Uh, what a waste 
to, to spend all of our energy, all of our effort acquiring stuff that doesn't have any lasting value. Acquiring things that in the end we lose anyway. And so we've got to drill this truth into our brains. We brought nothing into this world and we take nothing out of it. We just don't. And so in light of that, here are a couple of suggestions as to how we can begin to proactively live in the light of this reality that we can't take anything with us and begin to condition ourselves and live like that's actually true. I put one thing on your outline, but I'm going to share two things with you today. And here's the first one. Start denying yourself stuff that you want. Now, I know many of you here today are pretty disciplined people, and so you do this consistently already. But what I've found is that even people who are disciplined often are only denying themselves because it's financially prudent to do so. What I'm suggesting is that you go beyond that. And even if it is easily within your means to acquire something, just choose not to. Just to begin to condition yourself that you really don't need that thing to be happy. You, you could get it. You have the money to do it. But you just don't, you just don't need to do it. You, nothing is dependent on you acquiring that thing. Train yourself to be happy without the things that you think you want. And of course, for some of us who aren't so disciplined... We need to do this even more. Uh, this, this is not always the case. Hear me say that. This is not always the case. But for many of us who are always cutting it close financially, in many cases, it's because we have not learned to control our desire for more. And even though we don't have the means to keep pursuing more, we do it anyway. We create a real problem for ourselves. And so I'm calling us to just choose, just choose, to start denying ourselves stuff. Now, I hope you'll see the connection of what I want to share now. Uh, I, I think it'll be clear. Hopefully it will. But my uncle once told me that when it gets really cold outside, you know, we're talking like, you know, teens, single digits, below zero, everybody's shivering. Everybody has their coats on, but they're still cold. Uh, they're still complaining, you know, they're complaining about how cold it is, which, you know, I'm like the biggest complainer in the world about the cold, but, but everyone's doing that. What he likes to do is he likes to walk outside and go about his business with no coat on and just so, sort of like mind over matter a little bit, just like refuse to let the cold affect him. So basically he just, you know, straightens his back, sticks out his chest and like, come on cold, not going to do anything to me. And he just walks out and he just causes himself to be impervious to the cold. He considers it a challenge to not give in to the cold. And this is sort of what I'm suggesting we do by denying ourselves stuff. You know, we become so convinced that we have to have something. But what I'm saying is, even if it's in our power to get it, that we just, you know, straighten our back, stick out our chest and say, no, I don't have to have it and I'm not going to do it. And so when everybody else is like, you know, clamoring and, and jumping all over each other and, and waiting in the line at the Apple store for, for two days before the new iPhone 7 comes out, maybe it's already out, I don't know, we straighten our backs, stick out our chest and say, I'm going to be just fine with my iPhone 6. <laughs> I will really sacrifice now. 
and prove that things have no control over me by keeping the computer in my hand that I already have that has the whole world at my fingertips. Really learning how to deny ourselves. <laughs> but it's a start, right? It's a, it's a, it's a start. That we see the new car on the car lot that we would love to have. And maybe we can even afford to have it. But instead, we just straighten our backs, stick out our chest and say, no. No, I, I, I just, there's no reason I'll need to do that. I, my happiness isn't, isn't hinged on that. And so we walk back to our old car and we drive away and we're just pleased. That had no control over me. I am free of needing that. If you realize you're a person who struggles with the love of money, I encourage you just start denying yourself stuff on purpose for no other reason than just to build up your strength to do that. Recite in your mind over and over these truths. It is not in the power of things to bring me happiness. I cannot take any of this stuff with me. So how much do I really need it now? Another quote from the Greek philosopher Epicurus, when he was asked the key to happiness, he said this, add not to a man's possessions, but take away from his desires. Add not to a man's possessions, but take away from his desires. There was a saying among the Jewish rabbis, who is rich? He who is contented with his lot. With how things are right now. If you're content right now with how things are in your life, you are rich. And here's something that goes beyond just denying yourself that can help break the hold of the love of money over your life. Start practicing intentional generosity. Don't just deny yourself stuff, but start intentionally letting go of your money, letting go of your stuff, Give it away. Let's be reasonable, Brian. <laughs> Give it away. Be intentional about generosity. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And, you know, I... Just as your pastor, I, I just want to speak honestly with you. I, I believe the starting point of generosity, of living an intentionally generous life, is honoring God with your finances. Giving financially to the kingdom of God. Giving a tenth of your income to God. Or if you're not giving at all, and you know maybe getting to that place of giving a tenth is a, is a real challenge, you start out by giving something that is significant and substantial for you and giving it on a consistent basis. The, the truth is that this is more obedience than it is generosity. But if you're currently not practicing intentional generosity, this is the place to start. Giving back to God a portion of what already belongs to him, which is everything you have. Being obedient to God in this way helps to begin to 
to break the hold of the love of money over our lives. And, you know, I'm going to say something. I I say it um, with your best interest at heart. You know, and I, I say it without any knowledge of what anybody's doing, but if you're here today and you have income and you're not seeing the kingdom of God show up in your checkbook in any way, shape, or form, you're not giving anything to the work of the Lord, I'm going to suggest that there's a very good chance that the love of money has a hold on your heart. And I can say that really irrespective of what our financial means are. If we have income and somewhere we have not prioritized the kingdom of God in our finances, there is at least a very good chance that the love of money has a hold on us. And if we will begin to be obedient to God in this way and return to God a portion of what he has given to us, it helps to begin to break the hold of the love of money over our lives and it sets us on a path toward generosity. And so if you're not doing this for your own good, for your own good, I encourage you to begin. And here's the last thing I wanna share today that can help us move from where we are to where God wants us to be. We need to concentrate on and invest in things that are permanent, things that are eternal. Christianity doesn't appeal to us to live in poverty, but it does appeal to us to concentrate on and invest in things that are permanent. Verse 19, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. In what way do they do that? It's by putting their hope in God instead of money. It's by doing good and being rich in good deeds. And it's by being generous and willing to share. When we do these things, Paul says that we're laying up for ourselves a firm foundation for the coming age. And we are taking hold of eternal life. The life of God's eternal kingdom, we're taking a hold of that now. Now let me ask you a question. If you knew that in three days the stock market was going to collapse and all of your investments would be worthless. And we're not talking here now about a a serious downturn where it's like, you know, well, if you keep your money in the market over the long term, it always comes back. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a total collapse. You lose everything. Your money becomes worthless worthless. In that scenario, if you knew that was going to happen in three days, would you continue to invest your money in the market or would you pull all of your money out and invest it in something that would have lasting value? Leave it in, pull it out. Which would you do? Pull it out. Yep. You would use the money that you have now to invest in something that would have value in the post-collapse world. That's what you would do. This is what Paul and Jesus both encourage us toward. They encourage us to take the money and all of our resources, our time, our talent, every resource at our disposal, to take what we have now in this present age and invest it in things that are going to have value in the future age 
in the coming kingdom of God. You see, there's coming an age and we enter it either through death or the return of Christ. When everything that you currently have, your money, your house, your shoes, your stamp collection will be of no value at all. Be completely worthless to you. Folks, there's a time for all of us coming. It's either death or the return of Christ. Everything we have materially, completely worthless. So Jesus and Paul advise us to stop investing everything we have in things with no value in the coming age and start investing at least some of what we have. We, 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 have, to, we have to use some for things in this life. Let's face it, we have to use a pretty, pretty large amount of what most of us make for things in this life. But we need to invest at least some of what we have in things that do have value in the coming age. Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Everything in this life materially we eventually lose it. We can't keep it. But any of those things that we let go of to invest in the kingdom of God, we can't lose that stuff. We get to keep that forever. So I appeal to all of us today. I appeal to you, I appeal to myself to to learn the problem with the Happy Meal and all of our Happy Meals. And instead of spending our lives pursuing more and more happy meals, that we would begin to pursue the kingdom of God, that we would invest in the kingdom of God. It is true if we do this, we will have fewer happy meals. But they don't make us happy anyway. And they have no value at all in the coming age. So stop investing everything in happy meals. And invest things in the kingdom of God that last forever. Use some of your money, some of your time, some of your talent to build a foundation for yourself in the coming age and take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, why does Paul tell us all of this? Verse 9 again. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, and they pierce themselves with many griefs. The reality is that the love of money does damage to us. It brings grief and destruction. The love of money really, if we see it properly, it is bondage. And so the reason Paul writes all of this, it's not to shame us if we've been caught up in the love of money, It's not to scold us if we've been inordinately fond of money. No, it's not any of that. It is to help us. Paul wants to help us. Because listen, it's true. Living in contentment is a vastly better way to live than always discontented until you get the next thing. It's a better way to live. Not only does it secure a firm foundation for our future, but it's better right now to be contented with what you have than not to be. Freedom is better 
than being in bondage to the love of stuff and money. Look, I I don't mind admitting to you. I have believed many times that there were certain things that I could acquire that were were going to make me happy. And, And I can tell you, now some of those things I am still happy with them, like I recognize that's a, that's a nice thing. That's a, like I'm glad I have that. But it doesn't provide me with any lasting happiness. Every item I've ever purchased that I thought somehow this is going to make me happy, it lasted for about three minutes. And when we keep believing that the next item is going to bring the happiness, it's bondage. Bondage. And Paul doesn't want us in bondage. He wants us free. And he wants us to have the life that is truly life. And he knows we cannot find that life if we spend everything in a desperate pursuit of more stuff. And so Paul told Timothy, and by extension, the church at Ephesus and even us today, all of these things, because he wants what's best for us, freedom and the apprehension of true life. And so if we heed Paul's counsel, we can experience contentment. And our new way of living and investing is going to be a blessing to many people, and it's going to build a foundation for us in the coming age. And here's what it'll do as well. It'll go a long way toward building that self that we can present to God without shame. And so here's my appeal to all of us today. I include myself in this, I'm not meaning this to be condescending at all, but let's stop acting like young children who can't be happy until they have yet another happy meal. Let's not be like that. Let's be people who are happy if we have the happy meal, but we're just as happy if we don't have the happy meal. That's the best way to live. And it secures a firm foundation for our future life, which lasts forever. Let's stand.